why is buying business important? I think if you're, if you're listening right now, if you have been sitting on the sidelines and you don't have a business, I would heavily encourage you to consider that maybe you don't need to start a business and you can find one that's already out there that's done a lot of the legwork. Because the, the, the reality is starting a business while it is fun is a lot of hard work. And it's fun because you get to do the creatives and come up with your logo and your business name and you get to do all the fun stuff that creating it from scratch. And then reality sets in and then you got to figure out where am I going to get my customers from and I have no systems, I need to design some systems and all these kinds of things that you could fast track by buying something where half that work's already done or even all of that work is already done. What does a good business to you look like? So whether that's an acquisition or whether that's a whole new business, what do those rules look like? What do you need it to be? Do you want it to be a business that has a certain number of customers? Do you want it to be in a certain location? Do you need it to have staff or not have staff, right? These are the things you start to think about. When you bring on a new customer base and you're integrating them into your customer base is to shower those customers with love, shower them with love and be upfront about that view because what they're thinking is like what's in it for me what's mm. in it for me to stick with this business and so giving them so much extra more than they expected to really appease that fear of oh a big a big company or another company has taken over my account mm. i'm just i'm just a number now Hey, and welcome to another show. Uh, this is Entrepreneurs Rising. I'm Carl Taylor, and I'm joined by the amazing, the incredible, the most beautiful man you've ever met. His name is Peter Moriarty. Hey, Pete. How you doing? I love your compliments, Carl. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, I'm I know. Real, uh, it's my love language. It's, I know. That's uh, what I was going to say. Your love language is words of affirmation. So I, I know how to uh, make you feel good, my friend. <laughs> and uh, today we're going to be talking about a really interesting topic, at least to both of us and our journeys, we're going to be talking about buying businesses. That's really interesting to me because I was a licensed business broker. I used to teach people about buying and selling businesses. And of course, I have bought businesses as well. And Pete, what about you? What's kind of your experience been? I, I learned how to buy businesses and I've bought a lot. Yeah. Uh, well, nearly 10. I mean, it's not a lot if you were a venture capitalist or a private equity firm, but I mean, for a small business owner, just working away, growing their business, like buying, I think eight or nine now, that's, that's a lot. And yeah, it's, uh, definitely. it's been an interesting journey. So I'm excited. We're going to, we're going to kind of talk a bit about, you know, why you might want to buy a business and when and how that fits into your strategy and uh, share some examples from our own experiences as well. So um, let's kind of just jump straight in. Hey, um, jump straight Pete, in. Why, why would you buy a business? Why, where, where does it start from? And I, I remember like, you know, you were even teaching buying, selling businesses. One of your courses was even buy a business for a dollar. Like give us the lowdown. What's the pitch on buying a business and why it's important? Why is buying business important? I think if you're, if you're listening right now, if you have been sitting on the sidelines and you don't have a business, I would heavily encourage you to consider that maybe you don't need to start a business and you can find one that's already out there that's done a lot of the legwork. Because the, the, the reality is starting a business while it is fun is a lot of hard work. And it's fun because you get to do the creatives and come up with your logo and your business name and you get to do all the fun stuff that creating it from scratch. 
And then reality sets in and then you got to figure out where am I going to get my customers from? And I have no systems. I need to design some systems and all these kinds of things that you could fast track by buying something where half that work's already done or even all of that work is already done. They already have a client database that you could talk to. They already have proven the price point that someone's willing to pay. They maybe already have some staff. Maybe they have some systems. They have some suppliers. And they have relationships in, in place. And these are things that you can leverage and take advantage of. And usually the number one objection to buying a business is, oh, I can't afford it. That's usually the number one. The second one is, oh, I don't want to buy it buy one, I want to start my own. And that's that, that, that's fair call. Automation agency, my core business now, I started that. I didn't buy that. So I respect the idea of going, you know what, I don't want to buy a business. But also the other objection you'll get, or I hear a lot, and I'm sure you've, you've heard this at times, Pete, is, well, I'm already in business. I don't need to buy another business. Uh, and we're going to have some examples of why you might want to rethink that because uh, Pete's experience definitely has a lot around that. So I think that it's not about you should or you shouldn't. It's about not taking it off the table and saying, I don't want to buy a business. Looking at that as another option. Now, I will add a little rider here. If you are on the sidelines, you don't have a business yet. When I think of buying a business, I'm not talking about buying a franchise. That is a form of buying a business. And if you are completely green and you've never done business together, before, it might be something to consider. But let me give you a little bit of snapshot of my thoughts on franchises. They're generally designed to serve the franchisor. So if you're a business owner and you want to make a lot of money, create a franchise and sell your business as a franchise. Genius. I think it's great. If you want to buy yourself a job, buy a franchise. If you want to build a business that could work without you one day, like Pete and I have, or you want to be able to have your own creativity with marketing and you really want to just truly become a, a, like an entrepreneur and a true business owner, franchise will be a, a short-term thing for you. You will get frustrated. I've seen it happen again and again. People who have bought into a franchise and then a year, two years, three years in, they are now frustrated. They're stuck. They want to do marketing campaigns. The franchisor doesn't approve it. They're doing all these courses. They're learning these great things. They, they feel restricted and then they get annoyed at all the royalty and the money they're paying to their franchisor for limited support. Now, this is not to say there are no good franchises out there, but it's to me, I don't know your thoughts, Pete, but to me, it is buying a franchise is buying yourself a job. And if that's what you want, go for it. But if you want to really build a business, buy a business that's not franchised. I don't know much about the franchising industry myself. What I do know is there are you know, very much mixed results. There is a lot of animosity right now in franchise networks on how franchisees uh, have been treated. But let's steer the conversation back to why might you buy a business? Yes, that was a, uh, a bit of a rant. Show me, show me on the doll where the franchisee, uh, where the franchisors hurt you, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have not been hurt. I'm just very frustrated by the you've, franchise. You've, wit you've witnessed it. I, yeah. I understand that. So there's two things that kind of come up for me why I might consider buying a business. I think most of us know who've built successful businesses that the first three to five years in a business, you're proving the business. You're poor, you're not making any money from it, and it's really only year four or year five that you start earning a proper wage and you've kind of like built the infrastructure where you can start harvesting from the business. And so buying a business means that someone else has already gone through that for you. You just kind of get to step in. If not the full five years, they've done year one, year two, right? That's your buying time is really what you're buying. Yeah, they've at least done all the they've at least done all the hard work. And things like, you know, if they've spent money on trademarks and lawyers and establishment fees and all of those kind of things, like they will never get I mean, the kind of businesses that we buy, they will never get their full value of the money back on everything they invested in actually setting up the business. And anyway, but we'll come we'll come back to to what kind of businesses that you want to buy. 
The second thing that I want to throw in there is if you are an established business and you're considering buying an extra business, uh, buying another business, it is the fastest way to grow, full stop. Acquisition is the fastest way to grow. It just cannot be matched by marketing unless you are a social network and somehow magically organically growing through a network effect. But even said, that's a whole different ball game. But acquiring a business will allow you to not just pick up one new customer a month or 10 new customers a month if you're really busy, but you might pick up hundreds of customers in a day in the single transaction. And some of the transactions that I've done, we've regularly picked up 300, 400 customers, active customers in one go. And uh, in, I mean, in the period of one month, we actually acquired two different businesses, which tripled the size of our business. And so we actually tripled the size of our company. Um, so our revenue tripled um, over the course of that year, our team quadrupled. And, um, and that's, that's like, that's big, big significant changes and shifts. So um, that's where it gets really exciting is well-performing business might grow at 20, 30, 40, maybe even 50% per year growth. Uh, when you are acquiring and doing these kind of deals, you may, a slow year might be doubling the business, which uh, is what it's been for us. So let's get into it. What should you buy? Or when, what's, uh, what's the first step we should talk about? What kind of businesses are good businesses to buy? What should you look for? Is that is that the thing? I think that's what people kind of think in their minds, right? Like, well, what do we buy? Who do I buy? Yeah. Who do I buy? What do I buy? What's a good idea? Yeah, and and so I think again, let's let's split into to two camps. And I think the majority of our listeners are existing business owners. So I think we should spend the majority of our time focused on more the acquisition approach of growing by bolting on. Um, But let's just quickly touch base. If you you don't have a business right now, the kind of business that is worth buying comes down to what your goals are, right? If you're not in business right now, think about, are you looking for a job or are you looking to learn to be an entrepreneur? If you're looking for a job and maybe right now you're a mechanic, well then maybe buying a mechanic business is going to be a smart investment and a a purchase for you, right? You go, maybe it's the person you work for right now. Maybe you can buy it from your current boss or you can go out and you can find someone else who's selling their mechanic business. Now, if you want to take more the entrepreneur approach and the way I like to think about it is if you're a mechanic, the, the last type of business you want to buy is a mechanics business because that's going to mean you get your hands on the tools. What you want to do is you want to buy a business that you get to play the role of the business owner, the marketer, that you get to play with the levers of business rather than getting stuck in. I used to always say I wanted to buy a hairdresser because there was no way someone would let me cut their hair. Now, I had a student who bought a hairdresser and I found that even though he wouldn't cut the hair, he found himself sweeping the floors and found, he found other things to get himself stuck into. So you're still going to do it, but decide what do you want? Are you looking to build a business that you know a lot about? Or are you looking to be a business owner? And then that means anything is on the table. You want good cash flow. You want a repeatable business, ideally. You want something that it's not a one-time transaction, something you can sell again and again and again. And the first thing you need to do, no matter what kind of business you're buying, I think is you need to write your rules. The, The first thing you really need to get clear on is what does a good business to you look like? So whether that's an acquisition or whether that's a whole new business, what do those rules look like? What do you need it to be? Do you want it to be a business that has a certain number of customers? Do you want it to be in a certain location? Do you need it to have staff or not have staff, right? These are the things you start to think about. So um, Pete, like when you were looking at your acquisitions, did you write out rules first before you went searching or did you just start searching? What was your experience when you started versus what you would do today? I had a bit of an idea 
on what we were looking for. And we were just looking to grow our existing business by taking on competitors. That was the primary objective. And so we were looking for businesses the same as ours. We were looking for founders that were interested in exiting, which I had earmarked a bit of a shift in the industry that would make sense for a number of founders to exit at a particular point in time. I mean, the very first one that we did, we actually stumbled on by accident. And I just kind of like made an offer because I had my ears open. But the second, the third, the fourth were very deliberate looking at building our existing customer base of something that we knew we did well, we knew was scalable, and we knew that we could extract value from customers over a long period of time. So we were just looking to build volume. And so taking over a couple of competitors uh, was uh, was our strategy there. And did you have rules around like you wanted to take on staff, you didn't want to take on staff, you just wanted clients? Did you have any of those rules or was that very unique per deal that you you took that into consideration? Rules for me was uh, where I wanted to keep 100% of the equity in the main company. So I wanted founders that, that wanted a complete exit, cash payout, and that they would go. I wanted founders that were open to vendor financing because we didn't have you know, massive amounts of cash to go and uh, spend on these businesses. I wanted companies that were in the same market segment as us and pretty similar to what we were doing. So also working with small businesses, effectively companies that we could slot into what we were doing pretty easily. Market-wise, like they were based in Australia, you know, the, the ones that we were looking at initially there, yeah. So they probably like the most important criteria we have now broadened that criteria a little in that we're now starting to look at international acquisitions. We kind of ran out of obvious targets in Australia, uh, which is a good, you know, good problem to have. We kind of reached a, a market dominance position for IT Genius. And so the focus now is, okay, well, what other markets might we have a complementary business that we can purchase where we can open ourselves and expose ourselves to different customers in different marketplaces. Well, I think that, that brings up a couple of, couple of things I think to point out there. One is, you know, I love the approach of looking for competitors, right? Like that's an obvious, like who, who do you buy? Well, the obvious thing is, is an existing business owner is your competitors. Is there someone who already serves the exact same market with essentially the same product? And you can just, especially if it's exactly the same product, you can just bolt them into the way yeah. you do it. Or maybe they do it better. Oh, well, yeah. If they do it better, or maybe even you do it better and you know that you know you can you can bring more value to those customers. Exactly. So it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to be able to do there. So the competitors, the others, and so obviously with you, like it was bought up a whole bunch in Australia. There's not many more for you to buy. So yeah, you can now broaden, well, what else globally? What other countries? can you purchase um, these types of businesses in the com competitor space but there's also then there's a more like strategic space right well maybe you're not going to buy a competitor the other type of business you might buy is somewhere else in your supply chain or in your customers chain of who else they work with and, and we did that as well so we purchased a number of uh, web hosting companies and we rolled them up into a separate brand we called that host genius and that so that was i think three businesses we put into that brand and we grew that business and i'll, I'll get to the excerpt but what was really great about that was as you said it's a complementary business and what we really knew about hosting was that if customers are already coming to us for domain names for their email services for their IT support and they're you know calling us and we're their general go-to tech person then it makes obvious sense that we look after their website as well and so it was just very very easy for us to introduce our IT clients over to the hosting business and vice versa. That all worked quite well. Now, eventually we decided it wasn't 
the strategic fit to keep that business going. Uh, I wanted to focus more energy on IT Genius. Running two companies was starting to dilute my attention span and, and my energy, especially with the hosting business being very, very 24 hours. Hosting business is a, is a, is a tough business. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's a whole, whole nother beast. Um, you've really got to be all in on that. Um, and so that business, we were able to successfully sell. And so we got a good price for it. I was paid out. My partner was paid out in that business. And that was a successful exit, which was pretty cool. And so from rolling up, growing a business, and then successfully exiting. It's kind of like, you know, the, the full circle. And that's where, you know, you start to develop the skill of buying and selling businesses because it's a skill. It's like for anyone who's interested in real estate investment, your first, you know, your first uh, purchase of a property is very emotional. Maybe it's a property that you're going to live in. Even if it's a, an investment property, you know, everything is new. You've got to deal with the conveyances. You've got to deal with the property reports. You've just got to do all this stuff the banks, you gotta deal with all this stuff that you're not used to dealing with. And then after you've kind of popped that cherry with the first one, it becomes easier and you understand the process. And then you can kind of like rinse and repeat that process. And you've and built relationships as well, right? You've built relationships. Importantly though, it's less emotional. You're not really hung up, you know, because they're large transactions. We're talking about hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of dollars. They're large transactions. But after you've got a few under your belt, uh, it's the kind of thing where you learn a few do's and don'ts along the way. Uh, you know, you always learn things. And now me having done seven or eight, I'm still always learning. There's still always one or two OF moments that I have, uh, you know, where I go, oh, I could do that one better next time. Like, you know, use Google Docs for the contract instead of Word. So there's not 300 different versions, you know, from the other person's bloody lawyer. Uh, you know, like little things like that, you just continue to learn along the way. But for the most part, as you train that muscle of looking for deals, learning how to value businesses, and then actually doing the transaction, then it gets a lot easier. And one of the things that was really useful for me getting started was I worked with a corporate advisor in the first transaction and he really held my hand, right? Like it was, you know, four or $500 an hour. He was well paid for his time, but he really held my hand through the process. And I will link to Sean. I'm not sure if he's still consulting, but I'll link to Sean in the show notes there. But what he did, not only did he help with the deal, he also helped to educate me on how a deal actually works. And so then I was confident to go out and do more of my own deals uh, in the future, as well as other education that I had learned. And that's super important, right? Like to know when when is a good idea to get some advice. And even if that means it costs you a bit more, you know, especially in doing a, a transaction that is potentially a big transaction, you know, even if you're already doing a couple million dollars a year in your business and you go and buy something for a couple hundred thousand, that's still quite a, a large transaction, right? It is worth mentioning that if you're listing going, oh, well, I don't have a couple hundred thousand dollars, I can't do it. There's a few things. One, not every business deal is going to be hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. I successfully bought a business in 2008 uh, for $5,000. So you can do that. And I've also negotiated negotiated a cafe. I chose not to go ahead with it, but I negotiated a cafe down to $1. That's why I used to run these seminars about how to buy a business for a dollar because I basically was unpacking that whole negotiation and how that came about of the fact that someone would agree to sell their business for $1. But also another important point that Pete brought up a little bit earlier, he mentioned the words vendor finance. And I think it's worth, if you're listening and you don't know what that is, it's worth us unpacking that. So Pete, how would you describe uh, what vendor finance is to you? It's using the seller as a bank. <laughs> Nicely said. Yeah. And I, and I love vendor finance. I've 
in most deals that I've done had an element of vendor finance. And what it looks like is you will pay a certain percentage upfront. So cash down might be as little as 20%, 30, 40, 50% is usually more the norm. And then the remainder is paid over time. And if you're really cheeky in your negotiations, you can spread that out as far as over three years, which I have uh, been able to successfully negotiate. But effectively, it allows you to, and you can you know, choose to pay interest on that as well, but it effectively allows you to not have to deal with the banks to make a purchase. You know, Not all banks are going to see the, uh, the value or a security in a acquisition transaction, particularly if we're talking about small business arena. And so this is a way where you can make the deal happen if you don't have oodles and oodles of cash to just go and snap up competitors. And it's a way to make it win-win because often Mm. the business owner who's selling usually wants a lot more money than maybe the business is really worth to you. Yeah. But when you factor in vendor finance, it might mean you can come to an agreement of, all right, I'll pay you a bit more or closer to what you're asking. But my condition is I'll give you more money. You need to give me more time. And that's effectively because like when you're negotiating, there's three key things you can negotiate on. You can negotiate on money, can negotiate on time and you can negotiate on spec, right? That's really, that's it. They're your three levers that you can work with. So if you get to a point where you're in a stalemate on the price, they want this amount, you want to pay this amount, you're in a stuck position, you might go, okay, well, look, I'll pay what you're asking, but now we're going to negotiate time. And so instead of me giving it to you all today, I'm going to give it to you over the next three years. Yeah, we've agreed on the price. And sometimes that will include performance clauses as well. Um, and so that's, I guess, part of the spec. And that is, okay, well, look, I'm, I'm happy to pay you a higher price, uh, but I will be paying it over time. And if X amount of customers drop off, then yes. the, sale, the sale price reduces. And that actually is a, a, risk rever- a great risk reversal for you. Uh, I mean, you never go into a deal not expecting to pay the full price or planning to not pay the full price. Uh, plan to pay, absolutely plan to pay the full price. But you can easily and you should put those protections in place uh, that if you have the potential for customers to drop off or for the business to churn or you know, maybe it's a high growth, you know, potential uh, fleeting industry, then, uh, you know, you want to make sure that you're protecting the investment that you're making. Um, well, so really a lot can happen, those. right? Like, a, a, I don't know in your experience, Pete, but in my experience in the, you know, hundreds of businesses that I negotiated on, I didn't buy them all, but the, I found that most business sellers stretch the truth. Let's put it that way. Their, their version of the truth and my version of the truth didn't match. Let's, let's put it that way. I, I've, I've got a saying, Carl, and that is that nobody sells a great business. Like, there's all... <laughs> There's always shit in there. You know, if the business is going great and it's paying you lots of money and it's running really well and it's, there's no stress, like why would you sell that business? <laughs> so there's yeah. always skeletons, right? Yeah, there's, exactly. There's usually a various different things. And, and so, but just like kind of dating, you know, you dress up and you put on your nicest suit and you, you comb your hair and you have a shower and you do all those things to make sure when you show up to the date that you're presentable. And so business owners selling their businesses do the same thing. They show you the numbers that look amazing oh, look at this, look how many clients we have. And they don't mention that, you know, most of those clients are only here because they were sold and upsold thing. You know, revenues last month were through the roof because it was a one-time thing that will never happen again that they sold, but they'll try and value the business based on that being the usual revenues, even though that was something you can't expect to happen ongoing. Like that kind of stuff happens all the time. And so you do, if you are not great at looking at numbers, if you're going to do a transaction and buy a business, you need to engage someone who's going to be able to look at that in detail and flag questions to go back to the owner with. 
one of the businesses that we bought gave us their customer list, gave us all of their recurring invoices. And this was one of the hosting businesses. And they were, one red flag was that they were invoicing out of zero for hosting and manually collecting hosting fees from oh, wow. customers, which is, yeah, yeah, wow. And, uh, and what we found was about 30% of those customers had canceled hosting way, 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 way earlier and the invoices were just being generated, but actually never being never paid. Never paid. And so therefore, there were invoices going out to people that were actually just not customers at all. So we'd call customers and say, hey, you haven't paid your bill. We're calling to collect. And they'd say, no, 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 I canceled that a year ago. And so some of the business, quote unquote, that was sold to us wasn't actually real business. And that's where things like performance clauses come into place. Definitely. And it goes back to that spec, right? We we're talking about the three things. The spec is okay, you want this amount of money and you won't negotiate on time maybe. So, all right, well, the spec is we're going to change a certain amount of that to be performance-based or, you know what, you said you're only going to sell me this, but I want the company car as well. Throw that in. You, you know, you were going to keep that, but at this price, you've got to throw that in as well. That's the kind of thing you start to change the, what is the stru structure of the deal? What are you actually getting? And that might be another thing, whereas if, if they won't budge on the price, maybe you can negotiate by going, well, look, you know what, you can keep the business name, you can keep this. You can, I just want the customer list. I'll just take this section of the business. You can keep everything else. Sometimes that'll be something that they'll accept for the lower price because they can keep the business going and you just buy the bit you actually wanted. There, there's some of the things you can you can play with when you're negotiating. So one of the things that I get asked often uh, when people find out that I've bought many businesses is, well, how do I start that conversation? How do I find the deals? And then how do I start the conversation? That's pretty easy, actually. So I'm going to give you the formula. <laughs> it's, really, it's really simple. Number one, how do you find the deals? Most important thing is to keep your ears open. I think it's fundamentally important to understand that everybody has a different journey and everyone is in different places with their businesses. And so where you may look at a competitor and think, wow, they're doing really well and everything looks like a success from the outside, on the inside of that business, they, there may be family things, they may be looking for a change of pace, it may not be working out, they might not be enjoying the business, they might wanna to change to a completely different industry. And so without actually speaking to those business owners, and I'm, by speaking to, I mean just like sit down and buy them a coffee, you're not really gonna know what's going on uh, however, if you actually go to the trouble of just building relationships with your competitors, sitting down for a friendly chat, you don't have to pull your pants down and show each other your P&L, but actually building a little bit of relationship there, that's a really excellent thing. And you can let people know, hey, you know what, look, I've got the intention to grow our business through acquisition. You know, if, if this is or this isn't uh, you know, of interest to you at some point in the future, hey, uh, just give me a call. So that's not really how you do the outreach though. How you do the outreach if you're very seriously interested in, uh, in talking about someone's business, and this was done to me. It was done to me so well that I then adopted this for deal seeking. I basically start with an introduction. I say, hey, how's it going? You know, look, there's, there's been plenty of changes in our industry of late. And uh, I was curious if you were interested in a catch up to chat about potential strategic partnerships uh, or how, you know, we might, I, I don't like to drop in like how we might consider working together because that, you know, might be a bit weird, but basically like, hey, do you want to catch up for a chit chat? And that might be a hangout or it might be a coffee and just ask them how they're going. Like, hey, how's the business? How long have you been in business? Get to know the business owner. And then, you know, then you kind of share like, hey, look, you know, we're on this path. And we're considering corporate activity, mergers, acquisitions, other things, strategic partnerships. We're open to everything right now. We're just curious, is that ever something that you've thought about? And then you can just kind of shut up and, and you know, let the other person talk. 
And when you typically do your outreach, are you reaching out first via email or are you picking up the phone and calling them? Oh, either one or LinkedIn right. or, or whatever. I mean, these are people I tend to have seen around. Um, right. So, and, and so like yeah. when you say, hey, let's catch up, you know, have you ever had a competitor? You know, maybe you don't have that much of a personal relationship with them. You just know of each other. You reach out and say, hey, let's catch up. Have you had them come back saying no or just ignore you because they're maybe skeptical that you're a competitor and you're trying to pick their, their brains in some way? I'm just thinking what some people might think would stop them doing this. Yeah, I've, I've never really had that pushback. I mean, for me, our, our industry of G Suite service businesses is pretty small. Uh, so most people kind of know each other. We see each other at Google events and things like that. However, I've, I mean, I've had some people respond who have been just too busy, can't respond, sorry. There's been some people that I just never heard back from, but I never had anyone decline. Yeah, right. Yeah, but that's cool. it. That's the secret. It's it's not it's Just not reach more complicated. Out. It's Have a conversation. Not more complicated than that. And then you know the next part of the conversation is if they say, yeah, well, look, I'm potentially interested in that. Then you can ask, well, you know, what might that look like to you? Uh, you know, are you interested in potentially exiting your business? Are you interested in uh, you know in in uh, merging with someone? You know, where do you see the future of our industry going? How much longer are you interested in running this thing before you want to retire? <laughs> Uh, so, you know, those, those kind of questions and, and, you know, they might say something like, Hey, you know what? Like, I'm really interested in moving to New Zealand with my family. Uh, you know, we're going to have to sell the house and, and, you know, and do X, Y, Z, or I need half a million dollars to buy this Ferrari that I want. Uh, you know, there's little, there's little kind of pointers and hints there that will allow you to kind of pick up where they might be and whether or not they might be open to something. And then, then you let it flow from there. Then you go into deal mode once you think they might be interested. And, and it, it, I think it's worth pointing out, right? That you won't always get from a first conversation, yeah, I'm looking to sell, right? Like they're, they're not going to just come straight out and go, you know, like there's going to be potentially some skepticism on their end. Maybe they haven't really thought too much. Maybe you've kind of surprised them and yeah. it could take a few days, months, multiple conversations before they finally kind of fess up and go, you know what? Things are not as good as we make it seem because if, especially if it's a competitor, they don't necessarily want to let you know that things aren't as great as maybe it looks on the outside. And uh, it, there's a certain level of vulnerability. Again, if we link it back to dating, right? It, it takes a little bit of few dates before you start to maybe share some of the things that aren't your best qualities with your potential partner. And, and the same thing's going to happen when you're talking to someone who might be looking to sell their business. Unless they're in super desperate mode, they're maybe not going to you know, show right away that they're actually really interested. So you've got to look for those more subtle hints that might indicate that, okay, yeah, they're thinking of moving. They're going to have some situation changes. That you, they're, they're the hints that you, you want to pay attention to. Yeah. So I really want to hammer home this point of keeping your ears open. Um, what I specialize in is acquiring distressed assets or what I call distressed assets, which are businesses that are not uh, firing on all cylinders or there is a unique opportunity to acquire that business or the business is not well prepared for sale or it's a business owner who just wants to completely walk away and they're literally you know, ready to give the business away. Carl, I would say, walk in, walk out. I would say your criteria is, is probably you know, something along those lines as well, like you know, not to look for a well-prepared business, like to look for one where you can get a good deal on the buying side. Yeah, like I mean, there's, there's kind of two camps. So me, me personally, I'm, I'm far more at the moment still more interested in something that's got room for improvement. Right, like if I buy something that's yeah. already going amazing, then I've got to be buying it at what I feel is a discount, right? And at the moment, I generally would do that more in the public stock market. That's where I do those types of deals. 
Um, so, but there are, that's kind of the two camps is like you buy something that's a fixer upper, uh, but you need to have the skills to fix it up. And that's why it's like, if you're still in the very early stages of your business, you're still trying to figure out business going and acquiring a fixer upper may not be the best thing unless there's some great talent coming with it who know how to fix it. Um, whereas when you've been in business as long as Pete and I have, and you've gone through the motion, you know what it takes you to go and buy a business that's underperforming is a great opportunity because you can then come and plug in all the bits you've got that, you know, work well and instantly you can have instant profits added. Right. And the other benefit we haven't touched on this, that buying a competitor is, is, you know, let's say you've, you've already got someone who is, um, doing all your invoicing and bookkeeping and you go and buy this business on their P&L, they're going to have a line which is talking about their bookkeeper and their accountant. And that's instant money that when you buy the business gets into your pocket, like instant money on the bottom line because, yeah, there might be a small bump in your costs, but it won't be the same amount as what they're paying for their person. So instantly you've got these extra profits added to your business by doing that. Um, but the other camp is to buy a well-oiled business at a discount. Right, like a business that's doing amazingly well, and you're just making sure you're buying it at a decent price, that it's not overvalued and it's not necessarily at fair value. It's more discounted. That's the other camp you could go on. There's less of them out there. There's less, lots of people trying to sell them as that, but there's less of those actually out there. Yeah, and, and I would say that's really like that's really entrepreneur mode, right? Where you're buying a business that you do not intend to be operationally involved in at all. Uh, and so you're looking for something that's well-oiled and that's basically running. Uh, Got a CEO uh, in place or something, right? Totally. And it's higher risk than going and buying uh, companies in the public market. Uh, it's higher risk than real estate or index funds or whatever. Uh, so you're exposing your investment to high risk, but also higher return. But if you're, if you're in the build mode of your business and you want to just rapidly accelerate your growth, then buying fixer-uppers is uh, that's where it's at. And I think it comes down to have, being really clear on what value you can add, right? Yeah. Because if, if you go and buy this business that maybe what they do really well is what you do really well, okay, cool. It might double your business, but you may not get the same value add as a buying a business that does something well that you don't do well, right? Yeah. And and they, do, they suck at something you do well because that means you'll get a far bigger return, a far bigger multiple on that when you combine those businesses together. And I think it's worth touching whether you want to talk about it now or in, in a few minutes, the integration phase, right? Because it, it's all nice and well to go, cool, we just bought this business and we combined them. Everything was amazing. The reality is you've got two different cultures, two different types of people, different visions for the business. And all of a sudden, you're now trying to merge these ships that were maybe going similar directions, but not exactly at the same speeds and not exactly the same place. And you've all of a sudden thrown them together of course, there's going to be some rocking that happens when those ships collide, right? So, Pete, what, what would you share around your experiences in that? Uh, I think just know that it's a three to six month project. Uh, the first three months is literally just like, you know, getting the teams together, uploading the customers to your database, you know, getting to know the customers, meeting with them if you need to, those kind of things. The next three months is kind of like optimizing your processes to take care of the new entity. I think the most important or the biggest variable that we've noticed when we've brought on new customer bases into our business is at worst, we had 30% or more drop-off of customers. Um, and so that's what we now account for potentially happening. Worst case scenario, 30% of customers will drop off when they move. And sometimes it's just like, hey, 
I, you know, don't have a relationship with the founder anymore, or, you know, you know what, just this change just kind of prompted them to go to the market and rethink about something. But in the best case, we've retained 95% of the customers. And so that is a massive lever in the value of the asset that you're actually buying. So the most important tip for that is when you bring on a new customer base and you're integrating them into your customer base is to shower those customers with love. Shower them with love and be upfront about that. Be great at the communication. You're sending multiple emails saying, hey, welcome to the family. So great to have you here. Here's all the things we're going to do for you. Because what they're thinking is like, what's in it for me? What's Mm. in it for me to stick with this business? And so For us, it's been free trials, it's been periods of free support, it's been goodies, it's been discounts, it's been offers of strategy calls, Um, but just giving them so much extra, more than they expected to really appease that fear of, oh, a big big company or another company has taken over my account. Mm. I'm I'm just the number now. I've been forgotten. I've been sold off. And if you think about, uh, you know, in the in the internet service provider land, the big buy up that's happened over the past five years with all of those, people get, you know, thrown around different systems and oh, I've got a new username and a new password and all those kind of things that's so fatiguing. But, you know, really, they just get treated like a commodity, especially in the IT world, which is the space that we're in. Uh, so that's been our our biggest tip and uh, the biggest one to really turn the dial for us. I think also it's worth... Um thinking about you, you know, you mentioned three to six months, but it's sometimes it's going to be worthwhile while you've bought these two businesses to potentially keep them running almost in some ways separate, you know, in one strategy is combine them straight away. The other is to just try and make it as seamless as possible, especially if you're going to have to change their systems, send them new logins, right? Like one way you can try and ensure you recoup your investment is before you rock the boat, right? Before you go and rock the boat, you can you can keep that business going, especially if you've acquired their business name and you can just change some of the back-end systems, back-end pe- people who are on support, the back-end of who's doing invoicing. You can change that without changing the entire system. It'll be a slower integration process, but you might be able to retain more clients for a longer period and ease that integration slowly. So don't feel like just because you bought it, you had to instantly combine the two businesses fully as far as the clients are concerned. You could keep it kind of semi-separate. That's another strategy you, you can do here as well. I've got my criteria here that I just brought up in my notes, which is Pete's list of before you buy. And these are five things that are really important to me. Number one, be okay to walk away. Mm. Be okay to not get emotionally attached to this deal. And if it's not, a, if it's not an F year, walk away. Number two, is the asset undervalued? Can you demonstrate that you are getting a good deal on this asset? Number three, is there a clear path to increasing that asset value. Yeah, sure, it might be, you, you might buy an old car with rusted doors, right? But do you know how to fix it, right? So that's number three, make sure you can increase the asset value. Number four, what are the funds and resources and people required to actually execute this deal? So after you bought it, then what do you do? Um, you know, who's your team to actually make, uh, make the integration happen and make that renovation if it's a renovation happen? Uh, number five, what is the exit plan? Is this a business that is going to increase the enterprise value of your business or is it something that you're going to like we did with the hosting company do a roll up and then sell off you know is there an exit plan of some sort to go with that Mm, i love that that's my five tips and yeah look that's super generous to just share that like that's that's not just something you came up with that's literally your own message of what you stick to all the time which is amazing so i think i think it's worth kind of to to bring this to a, to a close, the final the final kind of things that you need to think about when you're going to buy any business, right? 
uh, financing. We've talked about vendor finance. So let's let's cover the final stages of, I guess, finance and due diligence. Uh, I think due diligence, we can just, you know, there's not enough to time to go through detail what that is. We can just give some kind of lip service to what that's about. But let's there's some time to spend on finance. So vendor finance is one option. Banks is another option. The triple F fund of friends, family, and fools going and raising some money from your friends, your family, and fools, people who are foolish enough to, to believe in you. That they're, they're kind of your easy, easy places to go. Pete, have you got any experience with other types of financing that you've used? Lots and lots and lots and lots of credit cards. <laughs> I've always had to be creative with my financing because, you know, like when you walk into a bank at 21 years old and say, hey, I, I run a half a million dollar business. Can you please give me a loan? And they say, how much property do you have? And I say, uh, well, I bought, I bought one when I was 19, but there's no equity, they, they tell you to F off. And so alongside the rapid growth of our business, I had to find ways of getting my hands on capital. I raised 50,000 from the Friends, Family and Fools Fund, friends of the family and said, hey, look, I wanna do this acquisition. Here's my P&L. Here's what this acquisition is gonna mean to me. Uh, can I borrow some money? And I paid, I think, 10% principal and interest over three years on that, which was, uh, which was you know, pretty good. That was very generous of people to help me out with that. Uh, my dad lent me a credit card, uh, which had a $50,000 limit on it. And I, I blew through that and paid that off over five years. <laughs> so these are like, these are like early days, but, but seriously, you know, at one point, and I think we'll do a whole episode on Pete's debt, yes. um, to give you an idea of the numbers. I had $350,000 of debt and this is bad debt. This is bank debt, credit card debt. 15, 20% per annum debt, $350,000 of debt when we were only doing $720,000 a year in revenue, right? That's just ridiculous. Look, look forward to that in an upcoming episode. Um, but what I utilized the credit cards for was I, I basically ended up getting a hell of a lot of credit cards, like over 100,000 in credit cards. And I was using those for the borrowing capital. And even though I was paying 20% on those, what I... What I, what I knew because I had done the numbers was that cost of capital was uh, going to be eclipsed by the profit of the deal uh, and the ongoing return on investment of the deal would uh, bring me return on investment in excess of what the cost of capital was. And so that's something that I learned about working with Sean, my acquisition mentor, uh, on doing a deal is yes, every deal costs money, but money costs money. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you have 100,000 sitting in your bank account right now, what else could you be doing with that 100,000? That's called opportunity cost. Uh, but also when you're doing a deal, like there's just a cost on that money. And you know, if you can get money at 3% or at 5%, awesome. If you can't, if you just got unsecured overdrafts and you're paying 13, 14%, that's okay as well. You just got to factor that into your numbers. In you just got to make the deal investment. work, right? It's got to be an ROI. You got to make the deal work, yeah. And the, the R and the ROI that I look for because people are probably going to be thinking, oh, well, what's like a good ROI? And I and you know, it's going to come down to what it is for you. But in the deals that I've done, I've tried to double my money over three years. So the invested capital, I've tried to double in the return of uh, of three year gross profit on the deal, um, and uh, so like a hundred percent ROI on on invested funds over three years. Uh, that's pretty good, thirty three percent per annum. 
Uh, I don't know what it would be if it was compounded, but um, that's that's kind of the metric that I try and use for those. Uh, that actually that prompted me on one of the thoughts I had earlier, actually, to because again, if you're still sitting on the fence here, going, well, you know, I'm already in business and I'm I'm doing pretty good at my marketing, and we we're growing fine through marketing. Why would I consider acquisitions at all? Is acquisitions, if you look at the, from a numbers point of view, just figure out what's the cost to acquire a customer, right? It is marketing. It's just another marketing tool which can also have a whole bunch of other great benefits and it can have some downsides too. Like we're not here to tell you this is the magic silver bullet that will change your life. Although if you do it well, it could totally change your speed of growth of your business. But if you're currently buying customers for $100 a customer, so what does that mean? You're spending $1,000 on an ad, you got 10 customers. So 10 times 100 was $1,000, right? So there, there's your $1,000 divided by those 10 customers. It was That's where you're at. So if you can now go and buy a business for $100,000 and that business for $100,000 has like half a million customers, well, 100,000 divided by half a million, that's how much you paid to acquire those customers. So that's the kind of thing that you can start to look at these numbers and it's just another form of marketing. Make the numbers work. Oh, and there are some beautiful numbers that you can do. I've just opened up a spreadsheet here, which is my acquisition tracker. And I'm looking at one of the deals that I did I paid $46 per customer. Oh, that's amazing. 348 customers and I paid $46 per customer. Now, some of the higher deals, the more average ones are around $100 to $200 per customer. And then the highest one was $6,000 per customer, uh, which was a very, very, it wasn't about the customer volume. It was a very strategic play and I got a lot of talent with that. <laughs> but uh, I think it would be worth, Carl, doing a part two of mm. this episode and doing a bit of a deep dive into some of our deals yep. uh, because there's there's been some very interesting deals with lessons learned, but also just understanding the numbers and the mechanics of these deals and exactly what value they brought to the business. Uh, because I know that if I'm spending money on Facebook ads, you know, sales teams and all of those kind of things, I might pay, I might pay 200 or $300 per customer for each customer that I need to acquire. Um, but, if I'm able to acquire a customer through a formal acquisition like this, uh, which is 50 or 100 or $150, then that's much, much better than it would be going out to market with paid media. Yeah. And it's, uh, in my, my view, it's, an, it's not an either or. It's a you should do both. And yeah. I, I think it's like whatever you've mastered right now, it's then go, okay, well, where does acquisitions play? And, and it's not always straightforward. Like for me, the automation agency, I've thought numerous times about what competitors could I acquire for automation agency to, to fuel our growth. And often when I look to the market, I don't quite see enough of the, of the types of businesses that I want to acquire. So then I start thinking more on the more strategic and, and the bolt-on um, complementary approach rather than a direct competitor because there's, no, there's not many uh, people who follow the exact same model. It doesn't mean I couldn't, but so that's the thing. If you look out there and you can't see a direct obvious competitor to acquire, it just, just still think about where you could utilize acquisitions to grow is really the big thing. And I agree. Let's do it. Let's do a part two, maybe even part three, who knows? And let's, let's deep dive. Cause I think, I think it'd be worth doing a part two where we look at the acquisitions that you've done. Cause I've not done any acquisitions to grow. So I can't tell from my experience on that. Um, but then we could do another episode for those who haven't done a business talking about the deals I've done to acquire businesses 
the way I had, it wasn't to bolt on to anything. It was just pure, like, let's buy this business. Awesome. I think that's a wrap for this episode, Carl. Uh, where can our listeners find the details? They can check us out at rising.show and you'll find uh, links to all the previous episodes so you can go back and listen if you haven't. You'll find us on all your favorite podcasting uh, devices and apps, obviously. We would love for you to leave a review. If you've liked this episode or some of our previous episodes, leave a review and more importantly, tell your friends about us. Tell them to get on board and have a listen because we want more people to hear the message about being an entrepreneur and how you can use entrepreneurship to be a force for good in this world. And we would love to be able to get that message out to more people. So uh, anyone that you know, spread the word. We would love to hear about it and uh, chat to us on social media and anything else. What would what'd you love? What would you like to hear more of? And we will do our best to deliver it to you. Rock and roll. Get out there and buy some businesses. Get networking. Yeah, do it. Bye. See ya.